Thank you. I trust everyone had a great time praising the Lord, praying together. Is that right? It's sweet to join together with brothers and sisters who have the same mindset towards youth and evangelizing and just reaching out to our community. It's definitely an important emphasis um, that we can have. Uh, we're going to switch gears here now, and we're going to top, talk about maybe not the most popular topic. We're going to talk specifically about trials. Um, I don't know what everyone in this room is going through, but I know in my own personal life, I'm surrounded by people who are going through trials. And you may or may not know it, know it, but I think all of us at this very moment are being affected by a trial. You're either in a trial, you're going into a trial, or you're coming out of a trial. Is that right? And it's just uh, the fact of the matter is it's just the world we live in, that there's trials that exist every single day from stopping at the gas station um, to your family life to raising children to having a difficult boss to having wayward children to having pressure at work. Here domestically in America, we are faced with trials on an ongoing basis. Is that right? And it's only here in America, but internationally as well. Um, you don't have to read very long through publications or the internet to see the level of persecution that other Christians are facing across the world today. Um, so tri trials are everywhere. They're here in Ormond. They're in Florida. They're in America. They're everywhere. So I think it's contingent upon us to understand or how can we glorify God in light of the trials that we face. Does that sound like a productive exercise? So we're, our goal is to do that today, and we're going to do that specifically by looking at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. So if you don't have a handout, I'd strongly encourage you to get one. We have handouts at each one of the doors around the building today. So if you want a handout, um, it would be very helpful to have one of those. Um, as you are opening your handout or as you're opening your Bible, I just want to give you a quick context on the book, the book of Peter uh, most of you know who Peter was. Uh, Peter was a very faithful man, but a man who also faced many trials. Um, if you look specifically at the Gospels, the Gospels um, present Peter as one of, the head, um, one of the head of the apostles, because when you see those lists of names, who's always towards the top or at the top? Peter. And also the Gospels, there's more information about Peter in the Gospels than any other person besides Christ. Also, we see that in the Gospels that Jesus had special lessons for Peter and that he was empowered by the Holy Spirit to preach at Pentecost, that he brought the Gospel to the Gentiles. Peter was a faithful leader in the early church. We can agree on that. Is that right? But just because he was a faithful person didn't mean that he was exempt from trials. He was also a person who faced great trials. Probably the greatest trial that I can think of that Peter faced is according to church tradition that he had to watch his wife be crucified. That's intense. That he had to watch his wife be crucified. And as she was being crucified, you know what he said? You know what he was shouting out? He said this, remember the Lord. 
So you can see in Peter's example that he was being faithful, glorifying the God in the glorifying God in the midst of a trial. And we also see that Peter, according again to church tradition, that he did not want to be crucified in the same way that his Lord was crucified. So he opted to be crucified upside down. So as we're jumping into 1 Peter, it's important for us to know that we're talking to a person who was faithful, but also great, or also faced great trials. And he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write the words that we're about to read. So what I'm saying is we're reading a good resource, not the words of Bobby, a young 35-year-old who's probably been through very little trials. We're reading the words of Peter. And I think that they will give us a great encouragement and instruction tonight. So if you have your handout today, I'll be reading from the ESV version. And it says this, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he has called you, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So one of the first things we see here in this verse is the word therefore. And the word therefore is a transitional word. It brings us from statements to commands. For example, a statement is, Bobby, you are a father. Therefore, you should discipline your children. Bobby, you are a husband. Therefore, you should love your wife. So therefore is a transitional word, but we see here, if we look closely, the action or the command is to set your hope fully on grace. But the statements are not there. So if you look or if you rewind and look at the beginning of 1 Peter chapter 1, we will see some statements that serve as motivation for you and, for I, for you and I to set our hope fully on grace. So we're going to take a moment and look at some of those statements. So if you look quickly over at verse 1, It says this, since God has chosen you. God has chosen the people people that he's writing to right here, but he's also chosen all of us who believe. And trust me, brothers and sisters, that is a gracious act. If you look at my background, I I am not deserving to be chosen by God. Most of my life, I have rebelled against God and rejected God. Yet he has chosen me. So we see what are some of my motivations to put my hope fully on the grace of God is that he has chosen me. He is a good God. Does that make sense? Also, if we look over at verse 3, we see that God has great mercy and has caused us to be born again. The good thing about being born again is that it gives you new habits. Who has bad habits? I have had bad habits. We have a long hand raiser in the back. He's had his hand up for about five minutes. He must have bad habits. But we all have bad habits. But one of the blessings of placing our faith in Christ is that he causes us to be born again. 
we are given new habits. He regenerates us to be a different person. That we have habits that glorify the Father, and we can develop habits that help other people. So, brothers and sisters, as we are going through trials, it would be very beneficial for us to remember that we've been chosen. We've been born again. We have the ability to have new habits. Is that good news? I get fired up about this stuff. So, so far we've been chosen. We are given new habits. And also we see in number four, um, in verse four, excuse me, that God will give us an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away. Have you ever got or received a really cool possession in your life that just gave you immense joy? Just me? I, uh, one of the possessions that I earned as a teenager was a new car, but it wasn't really new. It was used, but it was new to me. And the reason why this possession was so good is because my first car was a rust bucket. Anyone have one of those? It was blue, but it really wasn't blue. It was rust. And the cool thing about this car is that it did not have a grill. You know, the grill, the thing on the front, or a bumper. And um, I actually got pulled over by the police, and I was, I was given a ticket because I didn't have a bumper. And so what my dad and I did, we got a two-by-four, and we bolted the two-by-four to the front of the car, and I got wood stain, and I stained it, and I had a bumper. This car did not have AC. It really wasn't much of a car at all, but it was practical. It worked, right? But after much hard work, I earned a new car that had AC. It was red, not rust, and it was fully functional, and it was beautiful. You know how much joy I had when I received that car? Immense joy, right? No more rust bucket. But you know what happened? It started wearing. It started tearing. It started fading the way. So when we receive an inheritance from God in heaven, we will receive something that is far greater than a new car. We will receive something that will give us everlasting joy, and it will not fade away or perish. So as we're going into trials, if we think about all the things we have in Christ, it helps us see that we have full joy in him. You tracking with me? So what are some of the things that we have from Christ? Let's take a look. We have peace. We have perfection. We, well, we will have perfection when we see him face to face. We have God's presence. In the future, we will inherit full companionship with Christ. And if you look at verse 5 of 1 Peter chapter 1, we see that God is protecting our faith. Who would I want to protect my red truck? Someone who's a bad name jam, all right? Who's protecting our faith? God. Isn't that great news? So also, so God is protecting our faith. In verse 6 and 7, we see God is gracious in refining our faith. He is giving us a better faith. In verses 10 and 12, we see that salvation that the prophets have foretold about have come. So my main point is this, brothers and sisters, and you can see this in your handout, is that you and I, when we are in the midst of troubles, we can remember the gracious acts of God. We can remember the gracious acts of God. And those gracious acts include, as I said before, that he has chosen us 
that he has caused us to be born again. He has given us an imperishable inheritance. He is protecting our faith. He is refining our faith. And he has provided salvation to those who believe through his son. But you'll see here, um, so as we're going through troubles, first and foremost, we need to remember the gracious acts of God. But you'll notice in the next part of the verse, it says to set our hope fully on grace. What is hope? Some theologians would define hope as a Christian attitude or emotion towards the future. So some would say hope and faith are close cousins where faith is trusting in the things present and hope is trusting in God in the future. They both include trusting God. Does that make sense? So here we see that Peter is telling us to put our hope fully on the grace of God. Okay? But um, some of you are saying, Bobby, trials are hard. How can I develop a hopeful attitude in the light of a trial? Anyone thinking that? Well, this verse actually gives us some clarity or some direction on exactly what to do. It says this, prepare your minds for action. And what that really means is it says, think energetically about God. And what we said so far is all the things that God has done for us. So if we are in a trial, God is telling us to prepare our minds for action. Think energetically about all the gracious things that God has done for you. Start thinking properly. So far, so good. So that's what Peter is telling us. Remember what God has done in the past in the midst of that trial, but also be active in thinking about those things. Secondly, he tells us here, be sober-minded. What that means is to think clearly. To think clearly. I think there's many things in our lives that can distract us or intoxicate us or get us thinking outside of God. I think that possessions can do that. We're seeking after possessions so much that intoxicate our thinking that we're no longer thinking about God, but we're just thinking about stuff. Has anyone been there? So in order for us to think soberly, to think clearly, we should not just think about possessions. Other things that can intoxicate us is achievement, pleasure, comfort, money, computers, television, social media, all those different things can intoxicate us. So there's two main points that I'm trying to make here, and they're on your, on your handout. It says this, main point number two is prepare your mind for action by running in the truth of God's grace. In the midst of a trial, Peter is giving us instruction that you should prepare your mind for action by running in the truth of God's grace. Number two, or number three, excuse me, it says this, stay sober for the sake of having full hope in Christ. If we stay sober, have proper, clear thinking, we can exercise full hope in Christ. Does that make sense? Okay. So um, number, of, let's move on. Um, some of us might think, Bobby, 
you can't force someone to feel a certain way. And so far, I propose to you that you can feel hopeful or you can feel a certain way as long as you think a certain way, that there's a connection between the two. And some of you might say, well, that's not possible. You can't force me to feel. Well, I know in my own personal life, I know if I think about things, I'm prone to get excited about things. One of the things that excites me the most is surfing. Anyone like surfing? All right, all the kids in the back like surfing. And you know what? The more I think about surfing, what do you think starts boiling up inside my stomach? Excitement, hope, joy. So I know when a swell's coming, when waves are on the horizon, I start checking the weather channel. I start checking the news. I start checking the wind. I start checking the tide. I start calling my friends. I'm thinking about surfing, and the more I think about surfing, what's happening inside is I'm getting more and more excited. So I'm proposing to you, the more we think energetically, the more we think soberly about Christ in the midst of our trials, the more joyful we'll become. Does that make sense? I know it sounds difficult at times, but these are the words of Peter, the one who saw his wife being crucified and said, trust in the Lord. Am I making sense? Okay. So number four says, we can hope fully when we engage our minds to think energetically and to think clearly. We can hope fully when we engage our minds to think energetically and to think clearly. And the next point is this. Remember that the mind serves the heart. Remember that the mind serves the heart. If we start thinking clearly, our emotions will follow. There's a relationship between the two. Okay? And moving on, it says this in, first, in Peter chapter 13. Therefore... Since we have all these gracious acts that have been given to us by God, prepare your minds, think clearly, and set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You notice how it says fully? Set your hope fully. Not partially, not 50-50, but fully. And I think there's a tendency in my life and some other people's lives to set our hope in other areas, on other people, on, on other institutions. Some of us have set all our hope in a spouse. And what happens when we set all our hope in a spouse and that spouse disappoints us? We're crushed. Or some of us have put all our hopes, all our dreams in a child. And then that child messes up, what happens? We're crushed. Um, some of us have put our hope in church leaders. That doesn't always pan out that well. We could trust our church leaders, but all our hope should not be placed in our church leaders. Um, some of us have put all our hope in a political movement. Um, everyone's been through college, right? Or been in that stage of the early 19s and 20s. I remember when I first um, went to school, I put all my hope into politicians. I thought if I elected the right guy, the country was going to change, America was going to be the new utopia, it was going to be awesome. Nope. And specifically, my guy won 
probably about 20 years ago, well, 15 years ago, and all his buddies won. So he had the House, he had the Senate, he had the White House. I thought it was going to be like picket fences for everybody, and everyone's going to respect one another. It didn't happen. So my point is this. When we talk about setting our hope in things, and as we evaluate our life, it would be a very beneficial exercise for me and to you to evaluate, are we putting our hope fully in Christ or on other people, things, or institutions. Isn't that a good exercise to evaluate your heart in those ways? And so as we're going through troubles, we can make sure that we're not putting all our hope in those things, but in Christ for comfort. So far, so good? Okay. So we also see um, the main point in point six is this. Set all your hope on grace. Put all your hope on grace. And it says here, put all your hope on grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. If you know 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, it says this, um, we shall see, or excuse me, we shall be like him, for we will see him as he is. When Jesus comes back, we will see him and we will be like him. That is the grace that is going to happen when Jesus comes back again. For the very first time, we will be like him. That means that there will be no more tension between our sinful flesh and the spirit. Do you ever get sick of that? You're caught in those moments of trying to do the right thing. You want to do the wrong thing, but you want to do the right thing. And you're just stuck in the middle. And you just don't want to be in that moment anymore. When Jesus comes back, there's no more tension because we'll be like him. That will be a glorious day. Amen? So as we're going through trials, what are some of the things we can do? Number six is set all your hope on grace. Nothing else. Okay, so we've seen in verse 13 that the Apostle Peter has focused primarily on two things when it comes to trials. Number one, he's focusing on how we think, because how we think impacts the way we feel. And so for the remaining verses on verses 14 through 16, he addresses conduct how we behave in response to the way we think and feel. And I think that's a very important flow for us to understand that God first addresses the head and the heart, then the conduct. So as we're parenting our kids, as we're shepherding other people, as we're counseling other people, we're not just focused on the outward behavior, but we're focused on the inward condition. And that's the instruction that Peter is giving to us as we're going through trials. First and foremost, remember the gracious acts of God. Think properly, feel properly, then start behaving properly. Does that make sense? So let's see what Peter says in verses 14 through 16. He says this, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who has called you Excuse me, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. What does it mean to be holy? I'll give you a couple of definitions. Um, John MacArthur says this, that holiness means to be untouched or unstained by evil. It means to be absolutely pure and perfect. 
John Grudem says that God's holiness means that he is separated from sin and devoted to seeking his own glory. I really like R.C. Sproul's definition. Um, He wrote a great book on the holiness of God. It really was instrumental in my life, but this is what he says. He says that purity is a secondary meaning to holiness. He says the primary meaning of holiness is to be separate, to be a cut above the rest, to be drastically different. So when we think about God and his holiness, he is drastically different from you and eyes in all areas of his being, in his love, in his mercy, in his righteousness, in his justice. The holiness of God means that he's separate from all of us in all of those areas of his being. Does that make sense? And one of the illustrations I think that's fun for my kids to go through is when we play basketball, especially when we played basketball when they were younger, I was a cut above the rest. You ever play a five-year-old in basketball? It's awesome. I am the cut above the rest in dribbling because I can dribble between my legs. If they want to shoot the ball, guess what? I can throw it across the front lawn. I can dunk. I can shake. I can bake. I'm cut above the rest when I play fifth grader or five-year-olds in basketball. So just as I'm a cut above the rest in those circumstances and the areas of life, God is drastically, drastically infinitely a cut above the rest in his love, his grace, his holiness, and his righteousness. Does that make sense? So God is calling us as people who are going through trials, so people who know all the gracious acts of God, as people who can think clearly, can think energetically about God, he is calling us to live a life that is separate from everyone else, a life that is drastically different from everybody else. It's a nice challenge, but it's something that we ought want to do. Because as children of God, what happens? We are identified with God. Just as your children are identified with you, we are now identified with God. For good and for bad. I think we've all been in the bad where we have a kid who's not behaving properly, but guess what happens? Everyone identifies that kid with me. And so as us, as we've been adopted into God's family, as we are children of God, we ought to strive for holiness because he has adopted us and we are identified with him. And we want people to see the infinite value of living for God. Does that make sense? So first, in the midst of a trial, Peter's telling us to remember the gracious acts. Renew your mind, renew your heart, change your behavior. And if you go through the rest of 1 Peter chapter 1 or verses or chapter 2, 3 and 4 and following, he gives us some very practical advice on how to live a holy life. So number 7 on your handout says this, with changed minds and hearts strive to live a set apart lifestyle. With changed minds and hearts, strive to live a set-apart lifestyle. So if you continue on, Peter gives us, again, practical examples on how you and I can live a holy life. And if you look at chapter 2, verse 11, he says this, Keep away from the passions of 
the flesh. Keep away from the passions of the flesh. And this sounds very reminiscent to me to Matthew chapter 5, 29 and 30. Remember when Jesus says, if your eyes cause you to sin, do what? Pluck them out. If your hand causes you to sin, do what? Cut it off. I remember reading that, I think, as a teenager, and I was scared to death. I was like, what am I going to do? And I don't think I got clarity on that verse until I became a Christian. I was so glad for the clarity. But what, what Jesus was telling us is this. He doesn't really want us to amputate our hands and take out our eyes, but he wants us to think seriously about sin. That sin is no small matter. So if you have sin in your life, we need to take drastic measures to get rid of it. If the computer is causing us to sin, throw it away. If your new job puts you around a woman that you shouldn't be around, try to get a new job. If you're associating with people who are identifying you with the lost world, Find new friends. Take drastic measures as holy people to live differently. That's how you and I can be set apart, to be set apart in identifying ourselves with God. So that's what Peter tells us to do in verses, uh, chapter 2, verse 11. If you look at chapter 2, verse 12, he says, Keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. Keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. Uh, I'm going to give some real nitpicky advice real quick, maybe because I worked in the restaurant industry for a long time. Um, I don't know if church people always do the best job of being honorable in how we tip our servers. Because you guys, uh, we have a reputation of uh, give two and no more or something like that. I don't know, you could wait on it. We knew when church people were coming on Sundays because we were always having low tips, but I'm sure everyone in this room, tips graciously and above and beyond. But our responsibility as Christians, as people who know all the gracious acts of God, who have renewed minds and hearts, is to be honorable among the Gentiles and how we treat other people. Um, in verse, in chapter, chapter 2, verse 17, it says to honor everybody. To honor everyone. And the interesting thing, if you go on to verse 18, it says this, honor the emperor. Remember, the emperor started persecuting Christians. So Peter is telling us to honor people above us, even when it's challenging. He also tells us to honor everybody in verse 17. Now, my wife and I had the privilege of living in a, I don't know if it's a privilege, it depends on your perspective, of living in an HOA community. Would you consider that an honor or privilege to live in an HOA community? No? He says no. He wants to do cartwheels in the front lawn and tear up stuff, right? Yes. But for, for me, it was a privilege because they cut your grass. Especially in the summer. That is pretty awesome because it's hot out there. And so our family made an effort to honor everybody that would come to our house. And we had this one woman in particular. She was the supervisor of all the lawn maintenance people. And so you know what she looked like? She was rugged. But she was about this tall. But she was rugged. And so our family made an attempt to try to show honor to this person because we are identified with Christ and we want to make sure that we are elevating Christ in our life. So you know what we used to do? We used to make smoothies and bring them out to her. Our kids used to bring lollipops and water. And you know what started happening? This wasn't our intention, but you know what started happening? Our lawn started getting the preferential treatment. (laughs) 
they took extra care of our lawn. It was pretty sweet. But you know what happened? It paved an opportunity to share the gospel with her. And she, one day she came into our backyard. She walked me through her tough upbringing, her current situation, how she could not remove herself from sin. But I left her with this. What is your best reason for not following Jesus? And she says, I don't know if I really have a good reason. And she said, and I asked, are you okay with that? She says, I don't know. I'm going to think about it some more. And so my point is this. As people, we are now identified with God. And Peter is telling us in chapter 12, verse 17, we can show a holy lifestyle by honoring everyone, even the emperor. And if you go to verse uh, chapter 3, it says we can honor God um, by submitting, uh, by loving our wives and loving our husbands. Oh, this is good. If you look at chapter 4, verse 9, it says we can honor God by showing hospitality without grumbling. Got to laugh over there. All right, it says, and actually the Greek word for hospitality means to love strangers. And if you go to first, or chapter 4, verse 19, it says that we should honor God by trusting God. So the main point today, brothers and sisters, is the reality that we all have trials. Some are big, some are small. We're going into them, we're in them, and we're going out of them. But one of the best things that we can do in the midst of our trials, and this is point number one, is to remember the gracious acts of God that he's chosen you, he's adopted you into his family, that he loves you and will love you forever. Point number two is we can prepare the mind for action by running in the truth of God's grace. If I think constantly, actively, and clearly about God, what's going to happen to my heart? I'm going to be joyful. So I would encourage you, brothers and sisters, no matter what your circumstances is, think energetically about Christ. It will do amazing things because he's an amazing Savior. Point number three is to stay sober for the sake of having full hope in Christ. If we have clear thinking, we can have confidence in what God will do in the future. And he will help us reign in heaven forever. If you look at number four, it says we have hope fully when we engage our minds energetically and think clearly. We should also remember that our mind serves our heart and that we can set all our hopes on grace. And lastly, with changed minds and hearts, you and I, as people who are set apart, should strive to live a set-apart lifestyle because we are now associated with God. Amen? So I'm going to try this. The next time, well, right now, I'm preparing for my next trial. And I'm preparing for my next trial because I know it's going to happen by actively thinking about Christ and his word and allowing those truths to permeate my heart so that I can be joyful. And so when a trial comes, I'm not just thinking about the trial, I'm thinking about all those gracious acts. And it's going to allow me to persevere through that trial. In response to that grace and that love and that joy, I'm going to live a set-apart lifestyle. These are great words from Peter, are they not? It's pretty good stuff. So thank you so much for your attention. Thank you for praying. I always enjoy it when Hayward's here leading us in music, but it was a blessing to walk out the back and see all of you praying together. I trust that was a great time of worship for you. 
So let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed. Lord, thank you so much for loving us. Thank you, Lord, that you are teaching us how to live for Christ in the midst of trials. Lord, trials are not easy, Lord, but you've given us instruction that we can think about you and thinking about you will produce joy in our heart and allow us to live drastically different lives, Lord. Help us as brothers and sisters in Christ to encourage one another, to help one another when we are in trials. Lord, thank you for this church that preaches your word and tells other people about our Lord and our Savior. Thank you for this sweet time together, Lord, and help us to do all things for your honor and for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much. Have a great night.